Uh, Our great God, thank you that you speak to us and you love us and you want to bless us. And I pray now that those things will happen. That wherever we are on our spiritual journey, wherever we're at emotionally, uh, wherever we're at relationally today, you will, you'll speak to us and you'll bless us and you'll fill us with life and joy and all peace in believing. Amen. So, uh, this last week, Confessions of Holidays, we were, as a family, at Lord Howe Island, uh, courtesy of my mother-in-law, which was an enormous blessing. Uh, But here's what often happens when you go to a beautiful paradise sort of island like that, or maybe you've had that, you you know, you, you lie down on the beach, and you go, ah, this is the life. This is the life, right? You might have had that. I see some of you have been in Italy, some of you have been in South America, some of you have been in France on exchange. Or, uh, no, were you in France? Where were you, Ali? Somewhere? Austria, that's right. I thought as I said that. No, Austria. We've been all over the place. Ah, oh, this is the life. How many of you feel that when you're going to work on a Monday morning? You sit down at your desk, you boot up the computer. Ah, oh, this is the life. Yes, yes. How many of you felt that when you sat down in the comfortable, sticky red chairs this morning, and you went, yes, I'm in church, this is the life. Question for you, though, and this is a serious one. Um, In our culture, how would we fill in the blank? If If you went and talked to your friends, or your neighbors, or thought about it yourself for a moment, and you had to fill in this sentence, and you said, life is, and by life I mean, like, you're really alive when you have X, Y, or Z. This is, this is what life is, and if you don't have it, oh, but when you have it, it's yes. What would we tend to put in there as uh, Australians or people listening to this online? Uh, where, what would we put in there? Life is... Life is ridiculous. <laughs> wow. Did not see that coming. Uh, I don't even know where to put that. Okay, life is ridiculous. Okay, and thank you. Uh, What else? Life is, yes. Life is financial independence. Okay. Did did you hear that, kids? Uh, Yep. Okay, so why don't I just put a dollar sign? It's like money. captures a lot, isn't it? At the 9 o'clock service, someone said, life is your superannuation. Um, but it's, that, it's money and all that that represents. What else? Life is, life is a gift. Oh, life is a gift. Life is a beach. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. It's such helpful comments this morning, everyone. This is just awesome. What else? Life is... Life is complicated. Yeah. Life is complicated and messy. Life is short. Memento mori. Remember, we're all going to die. What else? Life is, if I, had, if I have this, then I have life. Relationships. Yep. Uh, and often what we, find, what, what we mean by that is uh, family. What else? Having a pulse. Having a pulse. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Rolf? Life is purpose. Okay. Life is beautiful. Oh. You spent too much time skiing in the Alps. This. Life is fun. If you, okay, it's fun. 
When I was at medical school, we had a T-shirt that said, "Life is a sexually transmitted disease." Uh, it was a little bleak and cynical and depressing. <laughs> Anything? You see, this is the big question for us, though, because uh, we're all we all want life, don't we? Like we we really want to live. We don't just want to exist. We're all trying to figure out how to make it work. And these are, let me see, I was going to say all. Yeah, I think these are all good enough answers, aren't they? In all kinds of ways, we look for life in these things. Uh, but they're also somewhat inadequate, uh, aren't they, as well? Because they don't really capture everything and they don't apply to everyone. So take, for example, uh, money or relationships. You know, here's the thing about many of these things. When we try and grab life by having these things, it's like trying to hold on to a cup of water or a handful of water. The harder you grasp it, the quicker it runs through your fingers. So it's a bit like that with family and relationships, isn't it? And maybe that's what we meant by life being ridiculous and messy and complicated. You, if, you, if you think life's about your relationships, you grab on, you try and hold on to your kids or your spouse or your love, and, and the, holder you, the, the tighter you hold on to it, the more you kind of squeeze it to death and it runs between your fingers and you're left you know, with a complicated, messy, ridiculous, and maybe ended relationship. Life is money. I mean, I actually think a lot of us functionally live that way. If only I had a little more, then I'd be happy and secure and satisfied and free. Problem with money is um, you've never got enough. <laughs> Do you? I've, I, like, really, we always feel like we could have just a little more to be secure and safe. I had this conversation once with a friend back in Melbourne. He was a finance guy, very, very successful guy, been working in Asia, paying no tax for years, earning millions. And, uh, and he said to me, he was the most worried, stressed guy. He was, we knew him through the mother's group, and he was really stressed about money all the time. And I was chatting, he said, oh, Mark, you know, um, it's incredibly hard to get capital, but it's so easy to lose it. And, you know, like, he never had enough. Because he just knew, he was a chief investment officer for a massive fund, and he just knew how easy it was to lose money. So he was worried all the time about losing money. You've never got enough, you've never got enough. The other problem with these ideas is often they're, they're the preserve of the privileged few. Like, uh, for a lot of this stuff, you can't really have life unless you're wealthy and safe and healthy and secure and, you know, life's a beach. Well, that implies you've got time for holidays and to go to Lord Howe Island or travel around and relax. And that's a privilege most people in the world don't enjoy. Uh, life's beautiful. Yeah, sometimes. Uh, it's short, though. So here's, here's John's Gospel. And here's what I'm going to try and do today. We're starting a series today on encounters with Jesus and very simply put, this is what I'm going to try and convince you of and what the text of John's gospel convinces you of. And I'm going to try, encourage you and me to actually live as though this is true. This is the purpose of John's gospel. Right at the end in John chapter 20, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, so all of John's gospel are written, Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have what? You may have life. So there's, there's a move here. You believe. 
here's the end goal of John's gospel is that you and I have life. And what John is going to try and argue is that we're going to have life because of our relationship with God. That it's only actually ultimately in our relationship with God that we find everything that we've been looking for, everything that we've been looking for in here that ultimately disappoints or doesn't quite get us there. All of this good stuff we're going to find in God. But notice in this text right at the end that there's a progression of of how we get to have life. And it's very interesting, isn't it? It starts with evidence. He says, I'm going to tell you about these signs. I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I'm going to give a testimony to what happened. And this is really important. Uh, And I'll get back to why, because I just want to show you. Evidence results in faith, and faith results in life. Now... Why is evidence important? Well, if we go back, the immediate little story before this summary, uh, these summary verses, Jesus tells the story of Doubting Thomas, or the, the writer tells the story of Doubting Thomas, which some of you may be familiar with. And I think old Thomas gets a tough rap, like he's actually a really smart guy. And if you remember the story, uh, Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus has died. And Thomas is... Thomas does what any normal human being would do, which is to assume that if someone is dead, they're going to stay dead. So all the Jesus has appeared to the disciples, they've come to him and they've said, Well, we've seen Jesus. And he goes, as if, unless I actually see him and stick my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe you. He's the original scientist. He wants some evidence to support his faith, his belief. Anyway, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out into your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us, right? Like, we have to come to faith on the basis of evidence that we haven't seen. And for some people, that's really problematic. Maybe for you, you may go, but if, I just, if God would just appear to me, then I could believe, right? But actually, if you stop and think about it for a moment, don't we base most of our lives on the testimony or the hearsay or the words of others? Most of what we live and believe and act on is based on what other people have told us, not on what we've seen for ourselves or established from first principles. So uh, how many of you believe that I went to Lord Howe Island with the family last week? Why do you believe that? Because I told you. You just assumed. And I have the tan. I have a slightly odd tan from sunglasses and, and some you know, spectacular burns, which when you let your 14-year-old daughter put sunscreen on your back and she's not a details person, let me tell you, it doesn't end well. <laughs> so there's some evidence, but I've told you this. Um, in your relationships, if, if your partner says to you, uh, uh, well, let me ask you this, how do you know if your partner loves you? Because they tell you. I mean, you could surmise it from their actions, but we can fake it, and and our actions can be very ambiguous, and you're not really sure, you know, are they bringing me this coffee because there's cyanide in it, they want to poison me and get all my money, or, you know, like, actions don't, in and of themselves, 
interpret themselves. So we rely on words, their testimony. I'm telling you I love you. That's I'm bearing witness to my internal state of being and disposition. And we base our lives on testimony, don't we? That's how our legal system works. We try to establish whose testimony is reliable and believable and we'll you know, put people in jail for a very long time or set them free based on testimony, on words. Um, we do contracts. We do multi-billion dollar deals in companies based on words which represent reality, not because we've established on the basis of first principles what we've seen. So, when it comes to faith in God, we're not talking about a qualitatively different kind of knowing. It's not like coming to believe in God is some other totally weird thing that you've got to do. We live all of our life this way, like based on science and evidence, and then, oh, we come to believe in God and it's some totally weird, brainless, mindless exercise. Qualitatively, they're the same cognitive process and process of coming to believe on the base of testimony. Uh, now, uh, that may or may not convince you, uh, but my hope is over the course of the series, increasingly you'll find this convincing and true. So, uh, the evidence that John is going to provide for us is sufficient, as we've discovered and God's people have discovered over 2,000 years, to come to faith. But it's not an abstract faith. It's faith in a particular set of propositions, isn't it? What is, its, what is the faith in? It's faith that what? It's that Jesus is a certain kind of person or being. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. So uh, it's faith in Jesus. And the claim of John's gospel is if you and I trust, if, if we put our full confidence in this claim that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and that he's the Son of God, if we trust him, then we're going to have life. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to find the life that truly is life. We're going to have everything we long for, every bit of joy and truth and beauty and goodness and justice in the world that, that makes our hearts kind of explode with joy. We're going to find all of that in Jesus. And we're going to find it in a way that never ends. And it's all going to come because of faith in Jesus. Can I get an amen? Come on, you Pentecostals. Let's get an amen. Okay. Now, I say that because if we're all religious... And we've been in church a while, we go, yeah, 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 that's true, that's true. Yeah, yeah, of course, Jesus, blah, 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 Jesus, blah, 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 faith, it's all true. Stop and think for a moment what an utterly outrageous and confronting claim that actually is. If you believe in a failed, dead Jewish revolutionary of 2,000 years ago, you will have everything that you really long for and live for. That's the claim. Follow a dead Jew. Now, you may not be overtly anti-Semitic, though I do discover very often that it's funny, all around the world, you just scratch a little bit under the surface and there's this seam of anti-Semitism and sort of suspicion of the Jewish people. That makes it even more astounding Follow a dead Jew and you'll have what your harborside house won't have, what your fully funded superannuation won't give you, what the best marriage relationship won't give you, what the best adjusted kids won't give you. If you follow a dead Jew, you'll have all of that. That's, that's, an, out, that's an outrageous claim, isn't it? I think sometimes I really want us 
to feel the force of that. Oh, don't take it too glibly. See, sometimes if, we, if we're just so used to it, we, we get confused. It seems easy and we get confused why our friends and our neighbors and so many people struggle to come up to believe this. Well, I think it's okay to struggle to believe it. Many of Jesus' contemporaries struggled to believe it. In fact, the vast majority of them did. It took them a long time. But John's gospel is written to do this work of, of backing up that claim, of giving us evidence to, to place our faith in this dead Jew. And in particular, he's going to do this by arguing that this dead Jew, Jesus, is not just any dead Jew, but he's actually the Son of God. He's actually the Messiah. And when we trust him because of that, we're going to have life. So... What we're going to look at in this series as we look at encounters with Jesus is how, in fact, is who, in fact, Jesus is, who Jesus is, and how, as we trust him, we find life. Look how John's gospel starts. And um, again, this is the question it's seeking to answer. Who is Jesus? Is he just a dead Jew? And how does he give us life? Okay. Well, in words that I'm sure many of us are very, very familiar with, he, he, he riffs on Genesis chapter 1, the very start of the Bible. All the other Gospels, like Matthew's Gospel goes back to the start of Israel. Um, they go back to the start of God's people. But John goes right back to creation, and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what is the Word? Uh, the Word here is the Greek word for logos, and uh, it's really talking about the pre-incarnate Jesus. Or, actually it's really complicated, it's the, this, it's the second person of the Trinity. And uh, this passage, this opening section of John's Gospel, establishes uh, and makes him us, uh, the credentials of Jesus and shows us clearly why we should trust him. What do we see uh, about Jesus in this text? Well, we see at least four things. I mean, there's so much more, and I'd encourage you to study it and you think about it as we go. But one thing we see, the first thing we see is that uh, Jesus shares God's eternity. Jesus shares God's eternity. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was Jesus, which is the same way that Genesis 1 starts. Before anything else was, there was the Creator, and this Creator included Jesus. This answers the very important philosophical question. I don't know if you've thought about it much, um, but it's a question of the ages, which is um, the philosophers ask, why is there not nothing? might have debated this as an undergraduate. You know, why is there not nothing? Why is there something in this world and not nothing? Why do we exist? Why does existence happen to be? And the answer is, the Christian answer to why is there not nothing is, in the beginning was the Word. That's the answer. There never was a time when God was not. Now someone after the nine o'clock service asked a very important question. They said, to, she, uh, this very thoughtful lady came to me and said, you know, when I, have, when I talk to my family, they always say to me, you know, um, 
you always argue that all of the, that, uh, you know, the big, that primordial, that original piece of matter that exploded from the Big Bang, that that just was. And you say to me as a Christian that that, that original bit of matter, that needed a creator and a God. But then the question is, who made God? Right? So you get an infinite regression. Everything we experience in the world has a creator behind it. Everything needs a creator. And what I've just said is that creation needed a creator. And the philosophers answer back, well, but surely then God must, someone must have made God. Now, that's a big discussion. I don't know if you've ever had that with somebody. The answer is this. It's a category mistake or a, a, a category error because the very God has made the world and, and he's made the very ideas of causation and creation and wasness. The fact that there was the world is the, the metaphors and the language we use of creation and of origin. This is all a construct of God. So this whole world, the very, the very fact we can think about God uh, in these terms is, a, is the creation of God. Time and space and reality are created by God. So he actually exists completely outside of and beyond description within the terms of this created world. So uh, it may not be a completely satisfying philosophical answer, but the answer is uh, God always was. And he's created the very idea of a beginning and a creator. Uh, and he is himself not limited or participates in those notions because he is separate from, he's above and beyond uh, the creation that he has created. And Jesus shares in uh, this eternity uh, with God. He has always been there with God. Now, the other thing that this means um, is uh, the second thing we see is Jesus... was eternally with God. So he shares in God's uh, being, and he's always been with God. Uh, He was with God in the beginning. So there's a separateness, a distinctiveness from uh, between God and Jesus, but an eternal identity and togetherness. He is separate and co existent with God. So this again puts us into the the idea of the Trinity, which is a a great subject for discussion, but here's one implication of it. It means that at the heart of reality, all ultimate reality is about relationships. Life is about relationships because God is not a single solitary being. He's a relationship of father and son from all eternity. The third thing we see is that uh, Jesus is one with God, don't we? Uh, We see this in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here's your verse for all the Jehovah's Witnesses who come knocking at your door. Jesus is what? Jesus is God. So he's not just a dead Jew. And he can provide you with life because, in fact, he is God himself. Now, I want to tease this out and flip it on its head and show you one of the reasons this is so amazing. What this also means is that from all eternity, God in his very essence is fundamentally Jesus-like. Shall I say that again? 
from the very beginning, from all eternity, God is fundamentally Jesus-like. That is, we don't come to understand God as an abstract, impersonal being, all good, all powerful, uh, a reach through you know, Aquinas's or Aristotle's five reasons to prove the existence of God or whatever they may be, and, and establish the existence of God and then think about Jesus sec- secondarily. The Christian conception of God says God in his very being is like Jesus. You say, well, big deal, whoopity-doo. Now, I'll tell you why this matters. Uh, I'm Jewish. Most of my family on my mum's side died in the Holocaust. While away on, and I don't often talk about the Holocaust, I don't think. Maybe more so than you're used to. But there's almost, there's seldom a day goes by in my life where I don't think about the Shoah, about the Holocaust. Coming up to Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, while we're away on Lord Howe Island, I read two books on the Holocaust. Uh, by a one, wonderful book by Primo Levi, an Italian a writer, recounting his experience of, uh, of Auschwitz. Um, and by the way, if you want to read, I think the, the go-to book on this is uh, Ile Wiesel's book, Night if you want to read a somewhat harrowing account of life in the concentration camps and grappling with God. But here's the problem and and the massive, massive issue for me and my family and my Jewish family and anyone who thinks is how can there be a good, loving, powerful God and the existence of such extraordinary evil? I mean, by the way, and as a side, I think this is a really important part of my identity for you to understand because it really does give me a... Like I've just lived with the weight of this and this, you know kind of horror uh, from a very, very young age. My entire memory is shaped the shadow of the Holocaust. So how can there be a God and all this evil in the world? Well, it's, it's a real problem if you're trying to argue for an impersonal, all-good, all-powerful, abstract God. But what if God in his very essence is Jesus-like? What do we see there? What is God like then in Jesus Christ? He's not distant. What we see, if God in his very essence is Jesus-like, we see that God in his very essence from all eternity is a God who is open to suffering, who identifies with human suffering, who is a victim of, uh, of enormous injustice and is a victim of torture and betrayal and execution by a hostile, oppressive foreign power. We see that Jesus is the only true innocent who is betrayed by his very own people as a result of their religious and political prejudices and fears and is crushed by an, a, a brutal oppressor, every bit as brutal as, as Nazi Germany. We see that's what God is like. He's come into human suffering and his very essence, he understands it and he's come to do something about it and arise again and defeat it and triumph over it from the inside. So... Uh, These verses move me to trust Jesus because I go, if in Jesus I see this is what God is really like. And it it doesn't answer every problem around suffering. Oh my goodness, we could talk for a week about the issues of suffering. But it gives me hope in the middle of suffering and it shines a light in the horror and the evil of the world. I see this light shining and the light says, this is what God is like. He gets it. He's experienced it. He's understood it. He's tasted injustice and evil and suffering and death. The very heart of his being from all eternity. This is what God is like. Now, the fourth thing we see is that Jesus is the creator. (laughs) 
So look at these. Through him all things were made. Isn't that amazing? Why should we trust Jesus? And why is Jesus able to give us life? Because he made everything. Now at a very simple level. Um, the person who makes like an appliance. If you get a new washing machine. Or let's pick a dishwasher. Incomprehensible. All these dials. And I just want one thing that just runs. But they all come with... Who knows how the dishwasher works better than the person who made it and designed it? Well, so Jesus knows life. He made life. He knows life. He knows us. But notice this. Uh, In him, that is in Jesus, the very essence of the Logos of God is life. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. What I think this is saying is that the life that is in us as human beings, and actually the life that is in all of the world, is life that comes from Jesus. So if I really study the world, and I, and I, and I get into it as a scientist, and I immerse myself in the world, and I follow the life that is there in the world long, long enough, it's going to take me to Jesus. It really will. I don't know if you've been around a dead body, a, a personal person who's died. I know when my dad died, I was, up, I was with him until about half an hour before he died, and then I had to go and run an errand, and I came back, and he, dead, he was dead. And if you've ever been there, you'll go, there is something fundamentally different between a person who's alive, no matter how sick they are, and somebody who's actually died. Something's gone, right? There's a soulishness about us. There's a a non-material reality. There's a life that, that is expunged, that leaves when someone dies. And if you've ever seen the before and the after, you've seen the corpse, you'll know what I'm talking about. That's the life that John is talking about. It's the life that comes from Jesus that animates everything, that keeps us all going. At a very fundamental level as creator, that's what's going on. Now, I'll tell you another less morbid way to experience this. Um, We could do it here, but it's a little, makes you feel a little weird, so maybe we won't. Um, We did this in first year philosophy at university. There's a, a philosophical article called The Gaze, if any of you have read it. And The Gaze is an article that, uh, that explores this non-material, mystical, spiritual, interpersonal life. And here's, what it, here's the exercise. Do it after church. Find somebody you're moderately comfortable with, or at least not totally uncomfortable with, and come alongside of them. Should I do it with Joe? And, and what you've got to do is you just... Hi. Hi. Yeah, yeah. You just, if you look, if you gaze at somebody and you look at them in the eyes, it's actually a little uncomfortable, isn't it, at first? Yeah, very uncomfortable. But what you discover is that there's something there, right? Isn't there? Like you're actually, you know, when you say the eyes are the window into the soul? Like in this gaze, there's life. And what I'm experiencing when I look at Joe's eyes is life. And that's actually the life that comes from Jesus. Thanks, Joe. That didn't hurt much at all. You can do that. And, and in fact, this whole article goes on to build a whole philosophy of interpersonal relationships and, and the personalist view of the world around that. And saying, when I look at another person, I see life. Now, uh, I've, I've tried this with my dog. 
And if you've met my dog, she is gorgeous. Chimmy is her name. You'll hear her barking occasionally. Beautiful, lovely, fluffy, white Labradoodle. And she's a very smart dog. Very smart. Smarter than your dog. She's a tremendous dog. We're making Chimmy great again this year. Um, she's the greatest dog ever. Um, no, she's a lovely dog. But when I gaze at Chimmy's eyes, I don't see life in that way. I see there's a little flicker of it. A little bit. But nothing like in another person. That's the life that comes from Jesus that is in all of us. And, and it's one of the things that's wonderful and science struggles to describe and say, what is it that we can't be reduced just to the material? And the Bible says, you know, that is, that is, that is the life of Jesus animating us, present in us. So, when I see and experience and know Jesus as these things, can you see why it starts to make sense that he can give me life? That, that, that he's got more to offer me than my superannuation or my harborside home or my family? That if I love him more and trust him more, it'll work for me in this way? However... Jesus, this Jesus demands a response, you see. Uh, we need, we can hear all this stuff about Jesus, but it's possible to not recognize him. The world didn't recognize him. We, can, we cannot see the life in each other and to not receive him. So we can ignore him, we cannot receive him, or we can receive him. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So what, I'm, what we're trying to do here and what I'm trying to encourage us to do is to receive this life. So yeah, it's found in Jesus. I've got to respond to it. I've got to place my trust in it. I've got to come to a position where receiving it means I see Jesus as the one who more than anything else in the world can give me life. And I'm going to live my life on that basis. I'm going to place my, the full weight of my existence in his hands. Now, that's not always easy, is it? Uh, six years ago was our first winter, this time of year, in Canada. And uh, for those of you in Canada who are listening, uh, thanks to Brian and Lorraine for this illustration. Uh, so uh, it's winter. And uh, some lovely friends, Brian and Lorraine, at our church in Canada, had a cottage by the lake. Now, if you know Canadians, the way Australians used to aspire to have a beach house, you know, at Avoca or wherever it is, Canadians all aspire, older established Canadians, to have a cottage by the lake. And the cottage can be a little shack, or it can be, you know, like a $10 million mansion uh, and anything in between. Now, these lovely, lovely people at church... Um, did something which is quite unusual for Canadians. They lent out their cottage. Often Canadians are very protective of their cottages. You know? So they invited, they lent out their cottage. They said, would you like to go up? And so we, we went up in winter, which was an unusual choice, but their cottage was what the Canadians call winterized, which meant it, you, know, you could actually use it in the winter, which many of them you can't. So we go up there in winter, and it's on this lovely lake, it's up on a bit of a hill, big rock going down, down on this lake, and we're sitting on the lake, and, and Brian had told us before we went, he said, you know, the lake will be frozen solid. It's safe to go on. You go, yeah, right. Okay, so we're sitting there, we're looking at the lake, and it's all beautiful. It's white. And now we've got a decision to make. Are we actually going to go out onto the ice? 
And the answer is, are you nuts? I mean, we've seen too many movies. We know what happens. You walk through the ice, you fall, you die. It's terrible. So we go to the edge and you start poking it. And then you get on the phone again to Brian. You say, Brian, are you sure? He says, look, uh, you know, it's like minus 15 degrees. Um, you know, a month ago I was up there and I took my chainsaw and I stuck my chainsaw through. There's a foot and a half of ice. You're totally fine. Okay, okay, okay. Still not convinced. I've heard the testimony about the thickness of the ice. And then we look as the day goes on, we see people walking on the ice. And we go, well, yeah, they're crazy Canadians and they're, they're probably lighter than us. They're little people. It's, of course the ice can support them. And then, then we see these young blokes hooning around on skidoos, snowmobiles, you know, like giant, jolly, like um, jet skis just for snow. And they weigh a lot and they're hooning around and they're... And at this point, we go, okay, we've got to trust. So you walk out onto the ice. But what we didn't know was that after the big freeze, where it had frozen through a foot and a half, it had melted a little, just the top bit, and then it had frozen again. So there was this little crusty layer of ice on top. So of course what happens is you walk out and you're through the crusty layer. And it's, oh no, and you jump back. Eventually, no, no, you go. And you, you walk through a little crusty layer and then you're resting on solid foot and a half of ice. And you're fine. And slowly your confidence builds. You discover that the ice can actually bear your weight. And then you're sliding down the slope on a toboggan, scooting across the ice, throwing the ball for Chimmy. It bounces for like a kilometer and she chases off. And a day later comes back with the ball. And, and you live on the ice and you discover it's wonderful. The faith in Jesus is like that. You know, like, can I, will, will, he, will he bear my weight? Will he really give me life? Phone a friend. How's it going for you? Are you sure it's thick enough? Is he strong enough? Is he good enough? Yeah, okay, and you tentatively, you try. And oh, and you have a little bit of a breakthrough, and, you, oh, and, it's, and you're not sure, and you jump back, and you jump on, and eventually the life of faith, where you find life, is you, you end up walking out onto the ice, putting the full weight of your life and your existence in the strong hands of Creator Jesus. And you discover, you discover that he's big enough and strong enough to hold you. And then you dance and you live on the ice. And you find entrusting him is your life. Let's pray. Our great God, uh, I pray for each of us that you will help us on the basis of the evidence to trust, Lord Jesus, that you are God and that you are good, and that you are strong enough to carry the weight of our lives, and you are big enough and glorious, glorious enough to give us life. Pray that as we as a church journey through this uh, Gospel of John, that you'll continue to speak to us and grow our faith. Lord, I pray for, for anyone in the room this morning who is standing on the edge of the lake and not really sure that it's safe to step out, that, that even this morning you'll just nudge them and encourage them that it's, it's okay to trust Jesus. It'll be okay. Amen.